The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at Spectator. Today I'm joined by feminist theorist, columnist at Unheard, author of the book The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, and host of the Maiden Mother Matriarch podcast, Louise Perry. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me You're today. very welcome. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump in, if I can, uh, before getting into your book and, and other such things, with what I think is a motherhood crisis. And uh, perhaps it's uh, something that I'm over-worried about, but uh, the Office of National Statistics suggests that I might not be entirely wrong to be worried about it, but uh, just uh, they've reported this year that... Now, half of women are childless at 30, which is for the first time ever. This is in Britain. Mm -hmm. That 18% of women aged 45 were childless by 2020, which, by the way, suggests that a woman aged 30 who is childless will statistically probably be childless forever, or child-free, which is another way of phrasing it. Um, uh, and that mothers have, on average, 1.92 children now, which is lower than the 2.08 that their mother's generation had. Now, I think you answer some of, the, some of these issues for why this is the case in your book, which I'd like to get into, but uh, I was speaking to, this morning to someone, and I sort of assumed that this was a bad thing, and, and his reaction was like, well, that's good, we, we need fewer people. And we need to have managed decline. And so what might be a very simple question is, why is that bad? Do we need mothers? And do mothers, do women need to have children? Yes, you don't have to look far to find people who will say that that's a great thing and who will see this gradual decline in childbearing, which, by the way, goes back a surprisingly long way. Mm -hmm. The decline in birth rates associated with the Industrial Revolution and also the decline in mortality, particularly infant mortality, described by, by demographers as the, as the first demographic transition. That's when basically every country, almost every country in the world now has undergone the first demographic transition. Britain was the first country to do so because we were the first country to have an industrial revolution. And that's when you see uh, birth rates dropping from, you know, seven children per woman or something extraordinarily high like that to just above replacement, and then you also have low mortality and whatever. That's, so, so even before the pill comes on the picture, women are having fewer children. Mm -hmm. But it's in the 1960s when the pill arrives that you see this very, very sharp dip mm -hmm. in fertility. And again, not just here, right? This is, I, I think, I'm, I'm trying to recall statistics exactly, only 3% of the world's population now live in a country where birth rates are not declining. Mm. So declining birth rates are the norm. And they started declining, as I said, first in Britain, but it's basically happened everywhere. It seems to just be an inevitable consequence of modernity, mm -hmm. that people, people have fewer children. And there are a whole bunch of reasons associated with this. The one that you'll hear most commonly from London millennials is 
that it's to do with house prices. Mm-hmm. And that it is a factor. It is that it's become more expensive, particularly in big urban centres like London, New York, San Francisco, Tokyo, wherever, to own property and raise children. And, and there are all sorts of costs associated with children that have become greater and greater as time has gone by. Mm-hmm. So that is true. That's not the only factor, though, mm-hmm. because if that were the only factor, then you wouldn't be seeing this extraordinarily global phenomenon of falling fertility absolutely everywhere, regardless of house prices. It does seem to be just something about modernity mm-hmm. discourages family formation. Well, there's a few things from all angles, right? So it's not just the economic, which I do happen to agree with that, mm-hmm. that, that we think we want to do things in a certain order and house prices are ridiculous. But there's there's also a culture where I imagine there's a, a hit you take economically. Not I imagine, I know there's a hit you take economically. You can no longer go on your summer holidays to Ibiza, let's say, which if, once people have built up careers, they, they don't want to make those necessarily, those economic sacrifices. Not to mention the cultural stuff, which is where we get into your your book. Yeah. Yeah. But that still doesn't quite answer the question, is it... Do we need children? Is it bad? Is it bad? Yeah. Like, is that not, you know, in an age where we're pummeled every day and being told there's an, a climate apocalypse coming, yeah. the people are a problem, is it not a good thing that there are fewer people? So I think that crashing birth rates is not going to solve the climate crisis for a few reasons. One is that it takes too long, right? If the problem is that we currently have close to 8 billion people who are living in such a way that you deplete natural resources as time goes by, which I think is true. Having, you know, 1.5 replacement rate or something like that below below the 2.1 necessary for replacement is not going to, you know, if, if Extinction Rebellion and Co are right that we're talking about apocalypse within a century, that's not quick enough, mm-hmm. right, to actually reduce the burden on the planet. So that kind of gentle decline in population is nowhere near enough to avert catastrophe, if that's your, the only tool that you're employing. So there's that. The other thing is that birth rates are not declining evenly. This is something that people don't always bear in mind, right, in thinking about this. So one example that I wrote about actually for Unheard this week is North and South Korea. So North Korea have just below replacement level birth rates, which means that their population is likely to dwindle a little bit, but not very much in the next half century. Whereas South Korea boasts the lowest birth rates in the world, 0.78, I think it is now, whereas you need 2.1 for replacement, which means that at the moment, South Korea has twice as many people as North Korea. But in by 2100, is that how you say it? 2100, whatever, that will have reversed. So North Korea will have twice as many people as South Korea. Mm. And there are very, very obvious geopolitical consequences to that in that it's predicted that in maybe 10, 20 years, South Korea will no longer be able to repel a land invasion from North Korea because they won't have a big enough military. So that's the sort of thing that we're thinking about. You know, I think what the, the fantasy of some environmentalists is that things will basically remain exactly the same geopolitically, et cetera, but people will just have slightly fewer children and eventually everything will just kind of gradually shrink. No. Mm-hmm. What happens is that some cultures are more resistant to whatever it is about modernity 
that causes fertility decline mm -hmm. than are others. And what we should expect to happen as time goes by is that those modernity resistant cultures are going to become more dominant and super modern, secular, urban, etc. cultures like South Korean are going to decline, mm. which is bad news if you, if, if your allegiances, as most environmentalists are, if your allegiances are with that kind of super modern, secular, urban culture, which is on, which is on its way out, which is committing suicide mm. effectively, because people do tend to, obviously there is some, there are exceptions, but people in general do tend to adopt the religiosity and politics of their parents because these things are partly heritable. Religiosity is a moderately heritable trait. Mm. Um, and one of the best predictors at the moment for fertility is how religious you are. Worldwide, that's true. Mm -hmm. Religious people just have lots more kids. Mm -hmm. This also applies, I think, to something like your interest in environmentalism. You know, if, you're, if you have the sort of personality, the sort of uh, intelligence and temperament and whatever that disposes you towards being a climate activist, there's a fairly good chance your children will as well. Mm -hmm. And also, these are the people, if, if, we, so if we accept my argument that actually declining population is nowhere near enough of an intervention to actually delay the climate crisis or, or, or prevent the climate crisis, I think the only way out at this point, with almost 7 billion people on the planet, almost 8 billion rather, is technology. Mm -hmm. Is better means of of of, of energy creation. Yeah, it's the only way. There isn't there isn't another way. There's. Have you ever heard this distinction between light greens, bright greens, and dark greens among environmentalists? No. So the light greens are the people who just think you should like. I'm I'm, I'm strawmanning a bit, but just think you should turn the tap off while you brush your teeth and uh -huh. just sort of like whittle around the edges <laughs> in terms of slightly reducing your consumption, and that's sort of fine. So they're the they're the least radical of, of everyone. The dark greens are the extinction rebellion types who say capitalism needs to be overthrown. Our whole way of life is disastrous. Mm -hmm. You know, who want to completely upend everything, and then the bright greens are the people who say what we need is technology and innovation to get us out of this. So Elon Musk is a bright green. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Right. So more people means more chance of innovation. More, yes, more particularly the type of, you know, if you're the type of highly educated person who really cares about the environment and is going around saying, I'm not going to have kids because of the planet, mm -hmm. you are exactly the sort of person who's likely to have children who are going to develop, you know, the next the next form of energy mm -hmm. that we need, yeah. you know. So I, I, I... I think that's probably the worst thing you can do, actually, hmm. is to refuse to procreate. Hmm. And, I, and I also honestly think that actually most people who say that they don't want to have children because of the climate, they don't, that's not actually the reason. What do you think well, the That's not the is? whole reason. Well, because there tends to be a kind of bundle of things which feed into all of the things which decrease fertility, you know, things like being a-religious, being a graduate, living in a city, being left-wing. Those things also all tend to go along with being very interested in environmentalism. So there's a kind of cluster effect where the it might be uh, sort of politically expedient to explain your reluctance to start a family as a result of, of, of number five, the environmentalism. Mm. But it's quite likely that actually all, all five are feeding into each other, mm. even if it's not quite as appealing an explanation.
for other people or for yourself. What do you think for women on an individual, you know, each individual woman, the consequences of them not having a child? Now, I'll give the example of uh, recently uh, American comedian Chelsea Handler doing these videos of her uh, living her best life on on uh, Instagram and, uh, and showing herself sort of skiing and freeing and living this luxury jet set lifestyle uh, and seemingly or claiming to be very happy. So that there is, a, and, and she has a lot of support for that, certainly from progressive circles. That, that suggests that actually it's great not to be a mother. Do you think that that's correct? Or are, what are the flaws in that line of thinking? I mean, I think it's, really good fun to be child free when you're in your 30s and I don't think it's very good fun to be child free when you're in your 80s mm. so so people are not wrong to recognize that going on holiday when you have small children is a nightmare and personally <laughs> test I have, <laughs> I have an almost two-year-old we've basically just given up traveling mm. with him because it's a it's a complete nightmare but it's, like, it's fine just don't do that for it's not very long. It's not a very long period of your life when you mm. can't go on holiday because you have small children. But it is just, it is straightforwardly true that they are expensive. My friend Alex says that the um, the only thing that will limit your freedom more than having a newborn is going to prison, mm. which is true. Wow. It is just true, <laughs> right? <laughs> but also you you front load a lot of exhaustion and expense with enormous payoff, you know, at the time, babies are joyful, but also further down the track, there's an enormous payoff on an individual level. Mm -hmm. So, and so the flip side of that, if you're if you're without child later, what's what are the downsides for women specifically? Like, what? How do they? I get I get the joke. If you're eighty, it's and you have no children, it's sad. But can you explain that to people who maybe don't understand that? Um. It is very common for women in particular and men to, to regret not having children later. It is very common. There are exceptions to that. But I think in general, it is probably a good policy when mapping out your life to basically behave as other people behave because the chances of you being an outlier are quite low. Mm -hmm. most, people, most people will not derive great meaning in their lives from their careers Mm -hmm. Most people will derive great meaning from their children. Mm -hmm. That's just true. There are exceptions, but that's just true for most people. And it is fun to have the freedom that comes with not having children when you're younger. But when you're older and you are more likely to be lonely, when you are dependent on other people for support, you know, you can't depend. When you're in your 80s, you can't depend on other 80-year-old friends yeah. to look to look after you in the way that adult children can. Mm. And also you probably aren't going to be able to depend on the state either because that's the other story in relation to falling fertility. The welfare state is a Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. It always was, mm. <laughs> right? Like when, when the old age of pension was introduced, when the NHS was introduced, we had a much younger population on average. We had, we had much higher birth rates and no one ever expected these things to become... I think six and six percent and seven percent respectively of GDP, mm -hmm. which they are now. Mm -hmm. No one ever expected that, but it's already clear that state pensions and the NHS and the whole the whole welfare state is not sustainable. It's only going to get worse with the child uh, decrease. It's only going to get worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think the chances of me, I'm now 31, the chances of me getting to claim my state pension when I'm 68, which I supposedly will be able to do are 
non-existent hmm. pretty much. I think it would be gone by then. You, you touched on one of the first lies of feminism in that answer is that, that a career, uh, sorry, yeah, well, I think this is, you can challenge me if you disagree, but that, that a career is more meaningful than having children. And, and something I've noticed in my generation is for women, it's, they've been told to pursue a career, to go to university, to go and seek work. But you claim, or you're arguing that no, that's actually not good for women. I think that's probably true for men too. I think the vast majority of people have jobs, not careers. Mm -hmm. And that's actually as it should be. Mm -hmm. It's weird intellectual types like me, (laughs) you know, who define themselves by their careers. It's, um, that's not typical and I don't think it ever should be. Most people derive most meaning from their families and their friends and their local communities. And, you know, there's so much data supporting this, this view that the things that make people actually happy are basically meaningful connections with other people. Mm-hmm. not abstract things like intellectual success or career success. Mm-hmm. But that that has been a very dominant view in feminism for some time that women ought to be prioritising the life of the mind or the success according to traditionally masculine criteria mm-hmm. ought to be the goal. I think that partly comes from the fact that sort of inevitably the women who have the greatest power in setting the cultural agenda and the political agenda are women who have chosen that route and for whom that route may be a better fit for them. You know, there are there really are outliers in every direction. There will be some women who have absolutely no interest in having children, for whom it probably wouldn't be good to have children because it's not, you know, they wouldn't make good mothers. They're not they're not orientated in that direction and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um and who are very driven in their careers and are just temperamentally kind of more masculine, right? Mm. Those women are so much more likely to be at the top of the tree when it comes to powerful institutions. Like female politicians, for instance, are are so much more likely than the average woman to not have children, enormously so. Inevitably, those women are going to be just a bit less interested in the alternative route and in promoting the interests and the viewpoints of women who've chosen to stay at home. I mean, stay-at-home mothers are probably the least represented demographic in the whole of the country uh-huh. in political terms, right? Because by definition, they're not in the corridors of power. Do you think it's that within feminist, different feminist movements as well, that it's been a tendency to try and strive for women to live equal lives to men rather than embracing the great things about womanhood? Because it's not necessarily just the women who are in top in, in certain careers who are as you say, outspoken and vocal, have have the opportunity to speak. But the whole various feminist movements, it seems to be trying to level the playing fields in a way that is against female nature. I mean, in, in your book, you I think you, you write, feminism needs to rediscover the mother. I'm not entirely convinced to ever embrace the mother. Yeah. Do you think that's do you think that's fair? Um yes. I mean so there have Feminism historically a very complicated political movement and there are lots of different warring factions. There have been strains of so-called maternal feminism or difference feminism or whatever, which I'm to some extent drawing on. But in terms of the, the, the most dominant feminist ideas, yeah, yeah, there's an antipathy to motherhood. And that I think is kind of built in to the ideology because liberalism is really hard to, to reconcile with motherhood. And so to the extent that feminism is derived from liberalism as the sort of ground of political movement. If if your priority is the freedom of the individual, 
and if your unit of analysis is the individual, how on earth do you deal with motherhood? Because babies aren't really individuals, hmm. right? Because they can't, they can't survive for even an hour without the devoted care of at least one adult. And mothers aren't really, certainly mothers when they have newborns aren't really individuals either. I've heard from so many women who've had newborns that going out of the house for the first time without your baby feels like missing a limb. That's the phrase I've heard mm. so many times. Mm. And that's how I felt as well. And it, it eases over time. You have this kind of gradual process of, of feeling more um, separate from your baby. But certainly in the early days, mother and baby are a unit. And if your understanding of society is as, is, is of individuals sort of like atoms just occasionally bumping into one another but basically operating solo what do you do about the mother baby dyad it just doesn't really make sense and so your options are basically to to be antinatalist to just say well it's better for women if they don't have children and some feminists are very explicit in saying that not realizing i guess or not thinking about the fact that that's a surefire way to to, to for your, your movement to commit suicide, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? If you're, if the people drawn to your movement end up not reproducing, yeah. then you rely on converting other people's children to the ideology. Mm -hmm. But that's quite hard. You know, you will, you will eventually run out of other people's children to convert. So is that. The other option that's been chosen by some feminists is to rely as much as possible on the state and to say that we should be trying to disrupt that intense link between mother and baby and using state services to that end. So universal daycare from birth sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And rather than having women supported by spouses, having women supported by the state, that's the kind of socialist feminist route as a way of dealing with this problem of freedom. Mm. How do we maximize women's freedom? Which do you support? Neither. What's your solution? I think it has to be the family. I think it's I think it's a pick your poison situation. I do because I do recognise that there are downsides to having women be reliant on the family network for support during the vulnerable periods of pregnancy and and babyhood. But I also think that there isn't a better alternative because I don't think that the state makes a better replacement family. I don't. Mm. I think it's worth saying that I don't think that the nuclear family should be the only source of support. I think that historically the norm for humans has been to be embedded within extended family yeah. networks and to have, say, lots of female kin mm -hmm. um, flock around. That it used to be a practice in the UK. Um, I did a um, degree in women's history and my dissertation topic was on um, the history of, of obstetrics in this country. And um, I don't know that word. What is that? Obstetrics. Childbearing. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and there used to be all sorts of practices we've completely forgotten about, which mm. are completely standard. Like, for instance, the lying in period. Have you ever heard of the lying in period? No. Where women would basically spend, I can't remember exactly the period, it's something like 30 or 40 days. They, after birth, they would spend being looked after by other people in their homes, basically. So this is obviously pre-hospitals. Mm. And then you, at the end of that period, you are churched. You go to your local parish church and there is a service and then you're sort of released from your lying in period. And this is occasionally being interpreted by some feminists as this sort of almost like putting women in perda, like a, women are sort of shut away because they're dirty or whatever. 
that's not the purpose of the lying in period. The purpose of the lying in period is to protect you and the baby from infection because you're not going out and about and risking disease and also to allow you to recover from this, you know, horrible experience of, of, of completely unanesthetized childbirth. Mm. Um, and what's really interesting about that practice is, is pretty much all cultures have something like that. And it's mm. all for about the same period of time as well. Mm. If you look at the, whatever they call it, lying in period of different cultures, it's all like 30, 40 days ish. Mm. And the way that it's done is that you have your female kin or sometimes your female friends or servants, if you can afford them, will come and look after you during that period and will do everything for you. Mm -hmm. That seems to be among most cultures, mm -hmm. the solution that is arrived at in terms of how do you support mother and baby during that really vulnerable period, particularly, of course, in periods of high infant mortality. And we don't do that. I was kicked out of hospital after less than 24 hours. Wow. after having a cesarean yeah. and in hospital had basically no support from anyone and had, and in fact i mean i to be fair i had baby during lockdown but i wasn't i wasn't allowed even to have my any of my relatives with me in hospital so, like we've completely done away with that and i think no wonder women get such bad postnatal depression mm. because we've basically we've just done away with the with the village mm. that exists for precisely this purpose and, and just left everyone with the, to their own devices. With the, so this is from the Industrial Revolution, basically. Yeah, and that's, yeah. And that's where the big change. So the, the fix for that is cultural then. It's not really political. What, what can the state well, really do to encourage that change in, uh, in, in looking after mothers? There, there are some things that the state probably can do. I don't think that what the state currently encourages is for people to be as mobile as possible in terms of internal and also international migration in order to maximize GDP. And also for the state doesn't really recognize the extended family. It's just blind to it mm. in general. How could it recognize it? One example I like to give is I have a friend who had a baby when she was at medical school, a single mum, and she somehow managed to finish her degree miraculously and then she was getting to the stage of applying for her placements as a junior doctor and she really really wanted to be located near where her mum lives because she wanted to live with her mum and rely on her mum for childcare particularly overnight because overnight you, nurseries are closed what are you mm. supposed to do if you're doing a night shift as a doctor and the NHS bureaucracy just couldn't compute this idea they were like okay so if you have if you have a child in primary school they respect that as a sort of geographic limitation. Mm -hmm. And if you have a spouse, they'll, they'll, they'll recognize that. But they, this idea of like a grandmother or what is just sort of, yeah. there's no drop down menu option for that because that's just doesn't sort of figure in policymaking mm -hmm. in general. I think it should. I think that we should be thinking about trying to strengthen the extended family in all policymaking and currently it's off the radar. So yeah, it's not as if the state can just wave a magic wand and, and return us to the medieval village mm -hmm. arrangement. But I think at the moment it does things that further undermine the family when it needn't. Like? Like that? But uh, what? how else? So one example, it sounds niche. The fastest growing type of household in this country is the multi-generational households, i.e. three generations living in the same house for economic reasons 
because of the housing crisis or yeah so it's partly to do with it's partly to do with young people not being able to afford to buy their own property so they're staying at home for longer it's also partly to do with older people just living for such such a long time Mm. that it can be the best option for a family to have you know to have a granny flat or whatever and to have um, an elderly person move in it's also quite a good arrangement when it comes to childcare. potentially if you've got an older relative living with you who can help sort of around the edges in terms of childcare, then that's can be quite a good arrangement for people part of the reason that it's growing as a household type in this country is because the south asian communities are much more likely to adopt that practice and not not necessarily because of poverty it's not like there's no direct correlation between choosing that option and being poor it's actually because it's culturally considered normal to have your yeah. elderly parents live with you rather yeah. than have them in institutions there are all sorts of really dumb barriers to multi-generational households mm-hmm. right things like just getting planning permission to build a granny annex or whatever or it's difficult to get a mortgage because there aren't bespoke mortgage products available at most high street banks when you've got, you know, so you've got one generation who have a lot of equity, but basically no capacity to raise a mortgage. And then you've got another generation who might not have as much equity, but can pay off the mortgage over a longer period. Like that's just the sort of thing that high street banks struggle with. They needn't, there's nothing inherently difficult about that. It just needs potentially some, some quite small policy tweaks. Mm -hmm. Um, But until now, I don't think government's really been used to thinking in those terms about mm-hmm. how to actually knit families together mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. rather than just encourage people to maximise their their earnings at all times. Uh-huh. Uh, I, if I can steer back to the, something that you picked on uh, earlier about sort of liberalism and, and feminism being incompatible, or, or rather, sorry, liberalism and, I forget the language exactly, but being a, a, a woman, a mother, being at, at odds of each other. And one of the brilliant pieces in your book, which, which, which I think is one of the contentious issues of today in feminism, is, is the idea, uh, and I think you use the term, uh, equal above the head. Uh, so have you, have you had, I imagine you've had pushback from that particular point, because that seems to be something that people disagree, disagree with. But it seems obvious to me that that biologically we are different and that hormones would have had different effect, have different effects on men as they do to women. And and um, what do you think, why do you think that's such a contentious issue? And wh- why is that so problematic for fem- feminists? The word that I've some, that I've heard quite a few times is that I'm being defeatist in thinking that there are ways in which men and women on average psychologically differ, differ from one another and that those differences aren't going to go away. That is seen as kind of giving up, just accepting, crucially accepting male violence, you know, hmm. just saying that, well, men in every time and place that we know of have always been more aggressive, than, physically aggressive than women. So it's actually not really about women. It's about, it, it's sort of an apology of that men behave badly. If, if you accept that, it's not really to do with... Yes, I think it's also seen to be feeding into... I mean, you know, there are historically instances of scientific sexism, shall we say, you know. What is it? What, what like, there was... I can't remember the exact number now, but women's brains on average are smaller than men's brains because women are on average smaller than men. And there were some Victorian scientists who got very preoccupied with the idea of, I think it's the missing five ounces... Oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, so trying to explain women's kind of cognitive inferiority on the basis of 
just brain size. I mean, we now know that actually average male and female IQ is the same. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was that was dodgy science. Yeah. But there clearly there clearly have been examples of of scientific sexism being mm-hmm. put to that end. And so some feminists hear me going around saying that men and women have important psychological differences and mm-hmm. they that's that's the fear that that's where that heads um towards just legitimizing the mistreatment of women how do we overcome that fear i think the problem is that it's true what's true that there are differences between men and women psychologically uh-huh. it's just true and it sort of doesn't matter whether or not you think that that truth might be misused by bad actors mm-hmm. it is just true and i think that i don't think we solve anything by trying to pretend otherwise mm-hmm. and i think also that when you withdraw from a discipline like say evolutionary psychology which most feminists are very suspicious of what you end up doing is having no ability to contribute to that discipline you know if anyone with a kind of feminist inclination rushes out of the discipline you sort of leave it to the you leave it to the bad actors Mm -hmm. right you're likely to actually produce more dodgy anti-feminist science because exactly. you just you've just you've, you've given up I, I mean that's defeatist arguably right yeah i think we should say the science is morally neutral if it's true it's true what we decide to do with that truth is up to us we can put it to whatever political ends we want to and and i think that actually there are ways in which you can use say evolutionary psychology to ends that promote the interests of women which is what I'm trying to do. So what would be an example of that? So on the sexuality issue, for instance, which I write about at length, there's copious evidence to suggest that male and female sexuality on average is innately different. Mm-hmm. And men are, for instance, more likely to be interested in casual sex than women Socio-sexuality. Socio-sexuality, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's your your innate tendency towards being interested in sexual variety. Mm-hmm. Men are higher in that trait than women. There's lots of overlap, you know. It's something that... Um, often really clever people are bad at understanding is the idea of overlapping bell curves mm-hmm. and the idea that you can be, you can have at the population level, you can have a difference, but there can still be individuals for whom, to whom that doesn't apply. Really smart people can completely lose their senses when confronted by this, but yeah. that's, that's what we're talking about in, when it comes to sociosexuality and indeed much else. I don't think it serves women's interests to pretend as I think we have done for half a century now that the only reason that women don't like casual sex as much as men is because they've been repressed. And that if only women could be freed mm. from that repression. That's the other great lie of feminism, it seems. Yeah, and that they could have sex like men and that this is what women really, truly want mm-hmm. underneath all of the sort of patriarchal nonsense. I don't think that's true. And evolutionary psychology would support that view. It's, it should be very obvious intuitively why the sex who, who, who risk much more mm-hmm. from any sexual encounter in terms of pregnancy in particular, why they would be the pickier sex and why mm-hmm. they would be less keen to jump into bed with someone they don't know. And if, if, you, if you can accept that premise, then the distress that is widely reported by young women in particular as a consequence of hookup culture can be understood not as the sort of vestiges of patriarchal sexual repression still playing out when women are slut-shamed, you can see it it instead as a completely good and natural response from women who are actually being put under pressure to have sex that they don't really want to have. Mm -hmm. 
And I think actually, if we're really interested in protecting those women's well-being, <laughs> I think continuing to try and make them behave more like men is not going to do that. Uh, and actually, you argue for marriage as the as a tr trying to bring very back. controversially, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the feminist case for marriage, yeah, which is which I've written for the for the Spectator as well, yeah. which is that if you are going to have children, particularly, the data suggests and history suggests that the only stable institution that has proven itself to actually protect the interests of women and children is marriage mm -hmm. monogamous marriage and basically all cultures basically all cultures either opt for monogamous marriage or polygamous marriage so one man multiple wives what one fact from your book that i found really surprising was that historically only 15 percent of of cultures have monogamous relationship as the norm have mandated monogamous so what quite a lot of cultures do is they permit polygamy which is not to say that every marriage is polygamous but they permit it christian cultures for instance don't uh-huh Okay. And that is the unusual, that's the unusual one. Okay, sorry, yeah. but I interrupted you, so... Uh... Well, and polygamy is bad news for women, in general. There are loads of... Domestic violence is higher in polygamous cultures, for instance. Mm -hmm. Child abuse is, is more common. There's higher crime rates, because you've got all these unmarried, angry men who are more likely to commit opportunistic crimes. Monogamous marriage has a whole bunch of downsides, but at the societal level we haven't yet found a better structure. Mm -hmm. And various experiments, you know, by utopians having sort of, I don't know, commune. I mean, one of the things that Jermaine Greer, for instance, imagined in the female eunuch published in the 70s, 1970, was um, having women living in sort of communes with one another and then men might visit occasionally, you know, all of these kind of experimental setups. They've never lasted. People have tried them at various points in history, not just post-sexual revolution. And um, they don't seem to work. They don't actually seem to accommodate human nature in the way that you need them to. Well, so as well as what I think we have, a, a mother motherhood crisis, we also have a marriage crisis. And I, I think it's something like the, the, now that the, for the average age for a woman to be married for the first time is in, the, I think it's 32, mm. and for a man it's 34. And in your book, you go into detail about that, really from the 1969 Divorce Act and how drastically things have changed since then. I think uh, you, you go into, if I remember correctly, and correct me where I'm wrong, back in 1968, 8% of children were born out of wedlock and now it's 50% of children are born out of wedlock. Something, sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. So uh, marriage has completely, as an institution, been worn away. And, and mm. how, how, how can we change that culture if, if indeed polygamy is worse for us as you've argued how do we change it and make and make marriage cool again um <clears throat> well in general the way you make things cool again is when high status people adopt them mm -hmm. it's true for basically everything so i guess if you wanted to make marriage cool again you'd have rich men and hot women adopting it <laughs> <laughs> simple as that okay <laughs> i mean that's just true those are the those are the, the quickest routes to status okay. in, in among human beings um uh, i don't know how we do that designing designing that particular policy i i guess i will leave well okay so then how do you government. win it? how do you win that argument with with the with let's say in feminist circles or, or how how do, in in the in the in the discourse how do we persuade marriage as as the worth redeeming 
Well, I mean, one of the things that's worth noting is that the richer you are, the more likely you are to get married and stay married. Really? Yeah. And so the poorer you are, why? So if you're poorer, you're less likely to. Yeah. Why is that? I don't know. There are different. There are different views on it. Huh. Have you come across Rob Henderson's idea of luxury beliefs? No. So Rob Henderson is a psychologist, writer, very huh. interesting, very interesting person. And he is best known probably for his idea of luxury beliefs. So this is, he defines it as a belief that confers status on the upper classes while the costs are borne by the lower classes. And he compares it to a, a sort of an ideological Veblen good. So a Veblen good is a good that is more desirable because it is expensive. So like a Rolls Royce, defying the normal laws of supply and demand. A Rolls-Royce is desirable because it's expensive, because everyone knows it's expensive. You can only access it if you're very rich, Mm -hmm. right? Rob thinks that this also applies to political ideas. So if you can hold to an idea that is actually very, very costly for, you know, not for you, but for, for someone less privileged than you, it actually is a way of boosting your own status and advertising your own own status so an example he gives for instance is drugs if you go around saying that you want drugs to be completely legalized you don't understand all the stigma about drugs whatever if you live in a nice expensive part of town and you can afford to go to very expensive rehab that doesn't cost you anything but it does cost someone who lives in a very poor part of town and is likely to have you know, the house broken into by junkies and to have needles in the child's playground and whatever, it costs them a great deal. So it's a luxury belief in the sense that it is a way of boasting about your own status without Mm -hmm. suffering any costs. Mm -hmm. And I think marriage may be an example of... what. Sorry, opposition to marriage may be an example of that. I was just thinking of Chelsea Handler as a perfect example of that. But boasting about privilege without showing any of the costs that it's going to do for her. Because the people disproportionately who suffer from family disintegration are poor people, particularly poor women and children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was, um, I can't remember who who said this. Not me, I'm stealing it from someone, but I can't credit them because I've gone. He said, um, the real losers from the sexual revolution weren't men, weren't women, they were children. Mm. I think that's true. There's so much evidence to suggest that divorce is a complete disaster for children. Yeah. En masse. Like it's worse for your parents to get divorced than for one of your parents to die. In really? terms of the impact on children. Wow. Then what does the uh, future look for feminism? What do you what, how, are you now Mary Harrington's just put out her book, Feminism Against Progress, and she cites you at length, which I imagine is very flattering. Do you is there <laughs> is there Is there a sort of comeback uh, for traditional or conservative feminism? So the term that Mary has coined is um, not conservative feminism, but reactionary feminism, Mm -hmm. which is partly a joke because it's funny and because, you know, you're preempting what people are going to say about you, Mm -hmm. um, sort of reclaiming the word reactionary, which is funny. But it's also... I think it does also describe quite a serious political idea. The problem with describing this program as conservative feminism is it suggests a slightly different relationship with the recent past. It suggests that what you're trying to do is cling on to the status quo. Whereas actually, as you know, in relation to marriage, for instance, what is there to cling on to? It's already dead. You know, Mm. 
the idea that we're going to sort of just um, stand athwart history yelling stop and that's enough. You know, that what we're actually thinking about here is a, is almost a reconstruction process. And I think, I mean, reactionary feminism is, is, is basically just a funny meme that became a, a, a serious political idea. But I think, it, I, think, I think part of what reactionary feminism describes and what I see as being part of what I'm trying to do is recognising that there are lots of ways in which our current cultural moment is very, very strange. There are all sorts of things that we do which are very odd and are largely a result of our material circumstances, the fact that technological processes, progress has been so rapid People haven't really kept pace with it in terms of our social institutions. And this kind of liquefying effect that technological pro progress has on communities and traditions, whatever. What I think the reactionary feminist says to this is, okay, we don't say, well, let's recreate the 1950s then. You know, let's let's look to the fairly recent past and say, she almost goal. goes back to the medieval period. Right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So she goes so, really exactly. super so, trad. Yeah, so Mary, so Mary, for instance, would argue, and did argue in a great essay she wrote years ago from which feminist against progress is partly derived, um, trad wives aren't trad enough. Yeah. <laughs> because actually, yes, it's, she very convincingly argues that actually women were probably better off in pre, pre-industrial revolution. On some metrics. On some metrics, yeah. <laughs> no. Not on all. But definitely this idea of progress being a straight line. Mm-hmm. It's nonsense. I think what the reactionary feminist project is, is to look across time and place, mm -hmm. you know, ambitiously, not just look back to the 1950s and say, okay, what are the common themes here? What are the, what are the norms, institutions, ideas, whatever, that seem to best promote human flourishing? What do all cultures end up settling on? We spoke about the lying in period, you know, if everyone's doing this mm. except us, is that because we are uniquely enlightened? Or is that because actually we're the ones who've gone astray? Mm. Should we be should we be returning to the lying in period? Should mm. we be trying to actually sort of reconstruct from from the past mm -hmm. ways of structuring human life which actually promote women's interests, promote everyone's interests better yeah. than what we do right now? That's I think what reactionary feminism is. And, and you, people sorry. seem to be quite into it. <laughs> I, I, uh, do you take issue with any of Mary's thoughts on it? Where do you think you divide from? Are you split from her? Um, I joke, but it is also true that I'm Mary's gateway drug. You know, she's a she's a more she's a more radical thinker than I am in certain ways. But then I think that's so valuable because she she follows some of these ideas through to their most Overton window pushing conclusions, like no sex for marriage. So Mary, for instance, has a whole chapter where she argues against the pill. Mm -hmm. which I didn't quite do in my mm -hmm. book. I present some of the arguments against, well, I, I present some of the ways in which the pill has caused some social destruction. And I push for some degree of kind of restraint. But Mary goes the whole way. Uh -huh. So yeah. you're still quite in favour of contraception in that sense. You, you think there's, there's still plus sides, but whereas Mary's kind of get married first and, you know, it's, it's basically strict Christianity, it seems like. Yeah. Orthodox Christianity without the Christianity, without Christ. Yeah, sort of reconstructed from first principles, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I don't... I use contraception within marriage, but like, I don't... I, I don't want to get rid of the pill. It's really useful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's basically my view, while simultaneously recognising that there have been destructive effects. Well, you social have, a, I think, pretty much a whole chapter 
yeah, saying yeah, the yeah. massive consequences of the pill. Yeah, so some people would say I'm a hypocrite. Maybe they're right. <laughs> Great, well, on that note. <laughs> Uh, Louise Perry, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you. (laughs) 